This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome once again to the program. In 1900, Walt Whitman wrote a poem which was included in his anthology, Leaves of Grass. He called the poem, I Sit and Look Out, and it goes like this. I sit and look out upon all the sorrows of the world and upon all the oppression and shame. I hear secret convulsive sobs from young men at anguish with themselves, remorseful after deeds done. I see in low life the mother misused by her children, Dying, neglected, gaunt, desperate. I see the wife misused by her husband. I see the treacherous seducer of young women. I mark the ranklings of jealousy and unrequited love attempted to be hid. I see these sights on earth. I see the workings of battle, pestilence, tyranny. I see martyrs and prisoners. I observe a famine at sea. I observe the sailors casting lots who shall be killed to preserve the lives of the rest. I observed the slights and degradations cast by arrogant persons upon labourers, the poor, and upon negroes, and the like. All these, all the meanness and agony without end, I sitting, look out upon, see, hear, and am silent. Now you may think this is a depressing way to start the program today, but the poem seems an apt link to the verses in Lama Tsongkhapa's text, The Three Principal Aspects of the Path, that we've been examining over the last few weeks. Remember those verses? Swept by the current of the four powerful rivers, tied by the strong bonds of karma which are so hard to undo, caught in the iron net of self-grasping egoism, completely enveloped by the darkness of ignorance, born and reborn in boundless cyclic existence, unceasingly tormented by the three miseries, by thinking of all mother sentient beings in this condition, generate the supreme altruistic aspiration. As we contemplate our world, it's easy to see, as Whitman did, the unending misery that pervades it. Take a glance at any newspaper or news website and it only confirms Whitman's de depressing vision. In the first line of the poem, I sit and look out upon all the sorrows of the world and upon all oppression and shame, the word sit is in capitals, and as a reader, you cannot but help link those opening words to the final two lines, and especially the final three words of the poem. All these, all the meanness, agony without end, I, sitting, look out upon, see, hear, and am silent. But if so, what shall we do? There's so much anguish, so much misery. What can one person like myself hope to accomplish, no matter what I decide to do? Even the Buddha, even Jesus, who some call the Son of God, could not eliminate the sorrow of the world. So what can I expect to do? 
In his verses, Lama Tsongkhapa also describes what we are faced with, although in a more personal and causal manner. Instead of looking directly from a distance into the faces of misery as Whitman does, he picks at the driving forces behind those faces and finds ignorance, wrong view, desire and attachment, leading to uncontrolled birth, aging, sickness and death. He also discovers karma, egoistic self-grasping and more ignorance to the point of impenetrable darkness. Lama Tsongkhapa, however, is much more explicit about our capacity and our need to help. Develop the altruistic intention, he says, meaning, of course, bodhicitta, or, if you like, the mind focused on enlightenment for the benefit of others, particularly the long-term benefit, the mind that cares not a hoot for the self unless it is in terms of others. From his point of view, it's a kind of egoism that sits paralyzed or unmoved at the contemplation of life's suffering, as much as the egoism that acts to cause the world's discomfort. As we saw in last week's program, it is egoism that lies at the very root of all the suffering Whitman finds in his poem, and more. As our final quote in last week's program from Alan Watts pointed out, the Buddha declared that the sense of oneself as a self-sufficient, substantial I, which is in charge of body and mind, is a delusion. The notion of a self-existent, personal identity is inborn, but it is also ignorant and acts as a source of suffering. This I that is so conceived does not exist at all. On the website www.rubten.eu, Gonsa Tulkum Rimshe says that to eliminate all harm to others and to help them in the best way possible, we have to eradicate the egoism tied up with this innate sense of I. He says, as long as egoism is not completely eliminated, it will not be possible to avoid all harm to others and it will not be possible to benefit them completely. Thus, one of the greatest mistakes that we want to challenge, to overcome and to eliminate is egoism. But it's not easy to eliminate egoism. There are many degrees of egoism from the very gross level down to the very subtle level. We are maybe able to control the very gross egoism sometimes, but to eliminate all forms of egoism down to its subtlest levels, we have to train ourselves into that direction for a long time. The root of all the afflictive emotions, he says, is self-grasping ignorance and self-cherishing egoism. And thus, ignorance and egoism are the actual roots of suffering in our mind. He continues, Ignorance and egoism are factors of the mind. As long as these factors are present in our mind, as long as they are strong in our mind, we will have to experience suffering for sure, even if we always wish to be free from suffering. A very egoistic person can be in a very pleasant outer situation, but will never be truly happy, will never experience real well-being. Wherever such a person goes, other people will always appear as a negative factor, and every place will be experienced as unpleasant. Any object one uses will always be dissatisfying. Such a person can be with anyone, go anywhere, use anything, but nothing will really bring happiness and contentment. As my venerable master used to say, a person who has a strong egoism can be compared to a person whose whole body is covered with wounds. Somebody whose whole body is covered with wounds will not feel well anywhere. 
Wherever such a person sits or moves, pain will be felt. Wherever such a person is touched, it will hurt. So, if we don't want to just sit by and be spectators at the intense misery around us, this is what we ultimately address, this egoism that we find in ourselves. But now, before we continue, let's contemplate our motivation for being together on the airwaves today. Seeing that Lama Tsongkhapa urges us to make bodhicitta our driving force, let's make that the motivation, as we usually try to do. But if that's not possible, at least think of your own complete liberation from suffering. Thank you. In his commentary on Lama Tsongkhapa's text, Geshe Sonam Rinchen writes, Living beings, our very kind mothers, are not merely swept along by these currents of cyclic existence into which they are born involuntarily through the forces of disturbing emotions. It is as though their hands and feet are tightly bound by the bonds of their past actions. These are difficult to throw off, hamper them and cause them untold suffering. They are ensnared in a net of iron meshes, caged in a steel cage of misconceptions regarding the self. If you were plunged into a fast-flowing river in this condition during the day, someone on the riverbank might see you or hear your cries for help. But on a dark and lonely moonless night, you would be invisible and your cries would go unheard. Our mothers are helpless and cannot even recognize what will bring them happiness, let alone find the way to freedom. Imagine being in a pitch-black room which you know to be infested with scorpions. The fact that you cannot see makes it all the more frightening. Unable to see their true condition, confused living beings harbor all kinds of misconceptions which lead to actions that bring them further suffering. Now this reminds me of an article I recently read in the New Zealand Herald website about a house of horrors in San Diego, California that claims to be the world's most extreme haunted house. It is called McCamey Manor and the people who want to take the four to seven hour tour through the house have to sign a waiver and are health checked against stress. They are completely at the mercy of the denizens of the house. As one organizer says, it's all a big mind game. We control everything, what they see, what they hear, what they smell, etc. We are the puppet masters. On a video named McCamey Manor 2014 on YouTube, you can see the results when an adventure junkie and a marine of 15 years tried to take the tour and failed. The surprising thing about this tour is that according to the New Zealand Herald, it has some 24,000 bookings from people all over the world. As it only does one or two tours a week, that is years of booking. It is as though people actively want to cause themselves intense suffering, no matter that the organizer builds the tour as fun. McCamey Manor could be a metaphor of how in pursuit of happiness we embark on actions that enslave us in situations that just cause us intense suffering. But at least the McCamey Manor experience will finish. Lama Tsongkhapa, on the other hand, suggests that sentient beings tour through cyclic existence has no perceivable end. Born and reborn in boundless cyclic existence, he says, pointing out that without help, beings have very little chance of finding the exit. And while they are in the tour, they are unceasingly tormented by the three miseries. 
and though the Makami Manor horrors are terrible enough to conquer a tough, long-term marine, the miseries of cyclic existence are many times worse. Most Buddhists will know the six realms of cyclic existence, and we've covered them in er earlier in the series of programs before. But for listeners who have forgotten or unfamiliar, they are the hell realms of intense ongoing suffering, like people in torturous hard labor camps, the realm of the hungry ghosts, in which beings have insatiable appetites that can never be satisfied, the realm of the animals, where beings act instinctually but without intelligence, the realms of humans like us, governed by desire, the realm of the azuras, or those who are dominated by jealousy and competitiveness, and the realm of the gods, those beings who experience very little or no suffering. In Buddhist cosmology, we cycle endlessly from one realm to another according to our calm and afflictive emotions. So that is what is meant by the phrase born and reborn in boundless cyclic existence. Then, when he talks about the three kinds of miseries, Lama Tongkapa means the suffering of suffering, the suffering of change, and the all-pervasive suffering. Again, we went through these at the beginning of this series of programs, but just to refresh, the suffering of suffering refers to experiences we normally regard as unpleasurable, like disappointments, diseases, relationship breakups, loss, and so on. The suffering of change indicates how all those experiences we see as pleasurable are in the nature of the law of diminishing returns. That is, the more we indulge continuously in them, the worse they get. For instance, a meal at a nice restaurant starts out as very satisfying, but go on eating and in due course you will start to feel distinctly uncomfortable. It is never the case that the more we continuously enjoy our pleasures, the better they get. They always get worse. And then the all-pervasive suffering means that wherever we go in samsara, we will never find long-lasting satisfaction. The very nature of cyclic existence is dissatisfaction and suffering. Lama Tsongkhapa therefore describes in quite graphic detail the plight of those who are caught in cyclic existence. Firstly, as we said earlier, under the force of attachment, ignorance, wrong view and desire, they cannot avoid life after life defined by birth, aging, sickness and death. But that's not all. They are still tightly shackled by their karma and ensnared in a conventionally unbreakable net of egoism. Furthermore, their ignorance is so dense that it's like being in the middle of the deepest moonless and starless night. Under such conditions, they are then repeatedly born in the various realms of cyclic existence, always looking for long-term happiness, but never finding it. Instead, they constantly migrate from one unsatisfactory situation to another. Lama Tsongkhapa encourages us to see all sentient beings in this way. He calls them mother sentient beings, because, as we've already proved in this program, there's not one being anywhere that we can point to and say, that being has never been my mother. We've had infinite lives, said the Buddha, and in most of those we had a mother who looked after us with incredible care. Now, if in every life our mother was different as the texts claim, we would have gone through so many mothers that we could not honestly say that any one being had not been our mother. In other words, we should see that all beings should be considered to have been my mother in a previous life. Consequentially, we should then show every being the same respect and reverence 
we would show our good mother of this life. In other words, we have to treat all in the same way as we would treat our mother of this life. A well-known example of how we should treat beings in cyclic existence is of seeing them as your old blind and lame mother hobbling along a very high clifftop. She's in imminent danger of falling, so what do you do? Just watch her trying to make her way through the danger? Or do you immediately go and help lead her away from the peril? Of course, if you're close to your mother, as most of us are, you would do everything in your power to help her. So similarly, Lama Tsongkhapa says that once we realize the danger that sentient beings are in, we have to do our best to help them. And that means developing the mind of bodhicitta. Why? Because we realize that the best way to help our dear mothers is by becoming enlightened. Who is the best at helping beings? The Buddha, of course, because he has omniscience and can see exactly what each being needs at any one time. As Geshe Sonam Rinchen says in his commentary on this text, pitying others who suffer is not enough. We must train ourselves in the special wish to take personal responsibility for their well-being. This goes counter to our natural inclination to turn tail and leave it to someone else. Remember the Walt Whitman poem. Geshe Sonam Rinchen then goes on, Once we are willing to accept this responsibility, we have to acknowledge that at present it is not in our power to help others by the most effective means, and that to do so we must gain enlightenment. And this is how the altruistic intention arises. First, gain an understanding of the process, and then follow it. Reflect on how living beings lack happiness until an intense loving wish to give them happiness comes as naturally as the ever-present thought of food when your stomach is empty. Think about their suffering until the compassionate wish to free them from it grows so strong that it is constantly in your mind, just as a mother whose only child is sick can think of nothing but finding a cure for it. Love and compassion must become powerful enough to influence everything you do. Only such love and compassion will arouse the special wish to take personal responsibility for others' happiness that leads directly to the altruistic intention. Thinking about how living beings lack happiness and endure suffering will only move us to love and compassion if we feel close and connected to them. The closer we feel to any person or animal, the more affection we have for them, the less we can bear to see them suffer. Whereas, we feel no compunction about seeing those we dislike suffer. Their unhappiness may give us satisfaction, and we may even wish worse disasters on them. From this, it is apparent that affection which regards all living beings as lovable is essential for developing great love and compassion. He then goes on, You might think, why do I need to take on this responsibility? Surely that's what Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are supposed to do. This is an unworthy thought. It's like thinking that your sister or brother, your cousin or some other family member will look after your mother when she's ill and that you don't need to bother. If you are fully aware of what your mother has done for you and are grateful, you will not only feel obliged to play your part, but will want to as a way of repaying her kindness. Similarly, when you make this special wish, you firmly resolve not to cast around for others who will take responsibility, but promise to do all you can yourself to alleviate the suffering of others, to give them happiness, and ultimately lead them to complete enlightenment. Looking honestly at your own present capabilities, 
you have to admit that you are quite unable to do this. Let alone taking care of all living beings, you probably find it hard to take proper care of even one. Perhaps you feel barely able to take care of yourself. He also writes that only enlightened beings have the ability to help countless other living beings. And so by becoming enlightened, we not only reach our own greatest potential, but we will be able to help others reach theirs. Then all our actions, physical, verbal and mental, will satisfy the needs of countless beings. If you are very thirsty and want to drink some tea, you need a cup to hold it, he writes. Like the thought of something to drink, the main objective of the altruistic intention is others' good. Your own enlightenment is simply the expedient means by which this is accomplished. He goes on to say that all the great activities of bodhisattvas will only lead to the huge amount of positive potential and insight needed for enlightenment if motivated by bodhicitta, the altruistic intention. It alone transforms the practices of giving, ethical discipline and so forth into perfections and makes the vast virtue created by bodhisattvas into an inexhaustible treasury, he says. Knowing this, bodhisattvas make cultivation of the altruistic intention their central practice. When you strongly wish from the depths of your heart to attain enlightenment for the sake of others, you have developed the aspiring altruistic intention. At this point, you enter the Mayana paths of practice and begin to create the great stores of merit and insight which take three countlessly long eons to amass. You know that you have actually developed the altruistic intention when the urge to become enlightened is constantly present and you feel that the suffering of living beings in cyclic existence particularly in the bad states of birth, is so intolerable that you must attain enlightenment as quickly as possible. Once the altruistic intention has arisen in this way, you must keep familiarizing yourself with it and train yourself to observe the precepts which strengthen it and prevent it from declining. In the Tibetan tradition, the Bodhisattva vow consists of 18 main and 46 secondary precepts taken in a formal ceremony. Thereafter, the main precepts are often recited daily in a slightly cryptic form good for memorization. However, for us to understand and apply the precepts properly, we'll have to take explanations from a qualified teacher, so it's inappropriate for me to go through them now. However, the great Vietnamese, Vietnamese master Thich Nhat Hanh has formulated 14 precepts of engaged Buddhism which I think largely embody the Bodhisattva attitude, and I'm going to include them here today. You can find them on the website viewonbuddhism.org. They are Do not be idolatrous about or bound to any doctrine, theory or ideology, even Buddhist ones. All systems of thought are guiding means. They are not absolute truth. Do not think that the knowledge you presently possess is changeless absolute truth. Avoid being narrow-minded and bound to present views. Learn and practice non-attachment from views in order to be open to receive others' viewpoints. Truth is found in life and not merely in conceptual knowledge. Be ready to learn throughout your entire life and to observe reality in yourself and in the world at all times. Do not force others, including children, by any means whatsoever to adopt your views, whether by authority, threat, money, propaganda or even education. However, through compassionate dialogue, Help others renounce fanaticism and narrowness. Do not avoid contact with suffering or close your eyes before suffering. 
Do not lose awareness of the existence of suffering in the life of the world. Find ways to be with those who are suffering by all means, including personal contact and visits, images, sounds. By such means, awaken yourself and others to the reality of suffering in the world. Do not accumulate wealth while millions are hungry. Do not take as the aim of your life fame, profit, wealth or sensual pleasure. Live simply and share time, energy and material resources with those who are in need. Do not maintain anger or hatred. As soon as anger and hatred arise, practice the meditation on compassion in order to deeply understand the persons who have caused anger and hatred. Learn to look at other beings with the eyes of compassion. Do not lose yourself in dispersion and in your surroundings. Learn to practice breathing in order to regain composure of body and mind, to practice mindfulness and to develop concentration and understanding. Do not utter words that can create discord and cause the community to break. Make every effort to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. Do not say untruthful things for the sake of personal interest or to impress people. Do not utter words that cause diversion and hatred. Do not spread news that you do not know to be certain. Do not criticize or condemn things you are not sure of. Always speak truthfully and constructively. Have the courage to speak out about situations of injustice, even when doing so may threaten your own safety. Do not use the Buddhist community for personal gain or profit, or transform your community into a political party. A religious community should, however, take a clear stand against oppression and injustice, and should strive to change the situation without engaging in partisan conflicts. Do not live with a vocation that is harmful to humans and nature. Do not invest in companies that deprive others of their chance to live. Select a vocation which helps realize your ideal compassion. Do not kill. Do not let others kill. Find whatever means possible to protect life and to prevent war. Possess nothing that should belong to others. Respect the property of others, but prevent others from enriching themselves from human suffering or the suffering of other beings. Do not mistreat your body. Learn to handle it with respect. Do not look upon your body as only an instrument. Preserve vital energies, sexual breath and spirit, for the realization of the way. Sexual expression should not happen without love and commitment. In sexual relationships, be aware of future suffering that may be caused. To preserve the happiness of others, respect the rights and commitments of others. Be fully aware of the responsibility of bringing new lives into the world. Meditate on the world into which you are bringing new beings. Do not believe that I feel that I follow each and every of these precepts perfectly. I know I fail in many ways. None of us can fully fulfill any of these. However, I must work towards a goal. These are my goal. No words can replace practice. Only practice can make the words. Again, you can find these wonderful precepts on viewonbuddhism.org. View on Buddhism is one word. I hope you find them as inspiring as I do. But as time is now up, I will have to leave you with them. 
I hope you can contemplate and perhaps embrace them over the next week. Thank you for joining the program today and I look forward to being here again next week. Please dedicate any positive potential from the program today to your and the enlightenment of all beings everywhere. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.